be a great series to head to the Sermon on the Mount. Whether you have uh, been in church your whole life, whether you're a member here at City Light, or uh, whether you're just coming to church for the first time, Jesus' words in this sermon are famous. It's what he's known for in many ways in terms of his teachings. Uh, but it should be a great way to get an understanding of who Jesus is and what he's really about. And this morning, when we start at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus sets out his agenda and what it is that he's going to talk about. And he sets up his expectations of what it means to be a follower of him and what his church should actually look like. I don't know if, um, if you, you've ever had the experience where the products have let the brand down. But when I was struggling in Indonesia a number of years ago, I remember heading up to, a, um, to the sort of the northern part of Sulawesi, which is not, not a massive sort of tourist area, um, but we're heading to an area that was uh, supposed to be quite like touristy as far as the area went. And we booked into a motel called a Wartel, um, which is just Indonesian for a tourist hotel. And it was advertised as being fully replete with Western comforts. We thought, that sounds good. But when, it was, when we saw it was about $4 a night, we became somewhat suspicious that maybe it wasn't as comfortable as it was sort of um, reporting to be. And when we got there, uh, the shock was real. The, the beds were, there wasn't a mattress, there was just a lot of like blankets over like a, a sort of semi sprung bed. The toilets, which the, like to their credit, were Western toilets. But they didn't install them backwards. And so we weren't sure quite how to sit on it and how it was all supposed to work. Because uh, obviously, whoever had installed them hadn't really used them before. Um, when, it came to, when it came to the meal areas and like, when the whole place was run down, there weren't windows on anything or any of that sort of gear. It was an amazing experience that was repeated over and over and over again, to the point where it just became sort of the fun of the trip. That you knew, as things were advertised, you knew you were going to get something completely different. But I wonder if you ever thought about it this way, is that the issue with followers of Jesus? A number of years ago, a whole bunch of churches around Australia got together to put together, maybe the first time ever, kind of a national advertising campaign. And, uh, and the campaign was decided to be called Jesus All About Life. And, uh, and a show on the ABC called The Gruen Transfer, which is just a show where they get a bunch of sort of uh, experts and commentators and advertising sort of execs to make comment on advertising campaigns, how they work, how the messaging works, all of that sort of gear. They got together and they had a look at this, this Christian advertising campaign called Jesus All About Life. And, uh, and one of them made a comment saying that what they've identified is that people really like Jesus, but they don't like church. So make that a focal point. And his comment was this, he said, when it comes to Jesus and the church, everyone thinks Jesus is great, but no one's big on church. In the sense, the product is going down the brand. We talk about it in management terms. But maybe we we'll talk about it in more serious terms. Mahatma Gandhi, who was uh, crucial, like a leader in the Indian independence movement, uh, who was heavily influenced by this, the, the text that we're looking at over the next few weeks, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he was influenced by a guy called Leo Tolstoy, who read the Sermon on the Mount and believed that the way that change should come about in society is by non-violence. So the way that they would protest is by, by peaceful, civil disobedience. That had a massive impact on Gandhi and his movement. And so he was moved by the teachings of Jesus. He didn't believe that Jesus was God or anything like that. But he made this comment about the church. He said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. 
your Christians are so high Christ. Possibly share the same concern. When they heard Jesus teaching, they thought that would be incredible if people actually lived it out. And so many have come to this point where they think, I, I like Jesus, I like what he says, the things that he says have had a huge impact and influence on people. But when it comes to the very people who claim to be Christian, that is little Christ, as followers of Jesus, the impact seems to be almost negligible. And so what we're going to look at this morning is what is it that Jesus actually says that his church should be like? Is this really the case? Is this the way it should be? When you actually hear from the very words of the man that people like and are influenced so much by his teaching, what does he really say that people who follow him should be like and should do? So I'm going to pray those who look at that this morning, who will be showing us clearly what that is and what that means. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are good. We praise you, Father, that you don't leave us as orphans of the world, but reveal through your word your will for our lives. So, Father, we just pray that as we look at your word, at Jesus' teaching this morning, you move us to a deeper understanding of who you are, who you call your church to be. Father, we pray that this morning will be transformed by that, that it might be for the glory of your name. Amen. Now, just give me one minute uh, while I switch over my team. Yeah, okay, great. So, just talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> this will, I promise this will be the most fascinating part of the But that's it. Yeah. Hopefully we've got that tune now, I'm going to kick it off. This should be good to go. Look, the, um, the sermon, can you hear me? I don't know if I'm coming through now. Alright, okay. Um, the sermon on the Mount kicks off with this, as we look at the first sentence, in this very famous sermon that's had quite a global impact, uh, Jesus starts in this way, I'll come up on the screen for you, Matthew 5.1. And Matthew is the, uh, the account of Jesus' life, written down by one of his disciples, Matthew. Uh, a tax collector who repented his ways and come to know Jesus. And in the first sentence of chapter 5, it says this, Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. The first couple of questions are this, where is this mountain, what's that about, and who are these crowds that we're talking about? In, in, the, in the section just before here, Jesus has become famous, we're told, in, in 424, it says, Jesus was famous throughout the area of Syria. His name had become known to the point where he couldn't be alone. People would follow him and massive crowds would gather around him. We're told that the crowds followed him from the areas of Galilee and the Decapolis. If you have a look at the next screen, there's a map there that will show you where this is at in case you haven't brushed up on your ancient Near Eastern geography lately. But looking here, these are the areas that we're talking about. This is north of Israel. And there's the area of Galilee, which was mostly Jewish people, but the area of the the Decapolis was kind of a mix. Most of the people there weren't really Jewish. So it was not only Jesus' own people who were Jewish that were following him and gathering to him. There were people from other nations that walked of life and doing that too, and coming down from Syria as well to hear him speak. And it says here that, uh, that he, he saw the crowds, and so he kind of retreats to a mountain, and just says, the mountain. As if you're supposed to know exactly where that is. It's probably because it's not a particularly important detail. It was just somewhere that he went to. But he gathers his disciples around him. And probably it's the case that he's talking primarily to his disciples. But there is a crowd around that can hear it or are passing on the message as well. But his focal point 
there's basically the few disciples, the group of disciples, a bit larger than the twelve more following him. Um, his primary audience, the people he's speaking to, are those people. And what he's about to tell them, he means to shock. The language he uses throughout this sermon is meant to get a reaction. And it's because there are so many people who are following him. There are so many fans of Jesus that he wants to sort out fans from the followers. And so he gathers his disciples and he begins this sermon to explain to them what is it like to follow him. Because everyone's about it. It's the cool thing to do at this point in time is to follow after Jesus. But he wants to sort out, look, which kind of crowd are you? Are you fans or are you followers? Do you really get what it means to be a follower of him? And so picking up from that point, he starts with this very famous part called the, the Beatitudes or the Blessed Bees. And he says this, He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It starts with a whole bunch of blessed, and it's important to understand what does that mean? That's not the kind of language that you use as you're just hanging around at the shops. You don't fare well someone saying, have a blessed day, you might. Um, but, um, but most people don't. So what does it mean to be blessed? Well, it's to have God's favour. It's saying these are the people that God looks upon favourably. To bless someone is to, is to want to do good to them. What he's saying is these, these are the people who follow God. These are the people who are blessed in that sense. Because these are the ones that, that, that God is looking to, that, that the followers of Him should actually look like. This is the blessed life. This is the way that it's supposed to be. And so here Jesus is describing the traits of God's people. And He's saying God's people are poor in spirit. They're mournful. They're meek. They're hungry and thirsty for righteousness. They're merciful. They're pure in heart. They're peacemakers. They're reviled even for doing good. And at that point, you think most of the disciples are starting to edge their way into the back of the crowd. Like, this is, this is like Jesus' vision casting moment, where he's like, this is what it means to follow me. And in many ways, people will be like, that's it? Like, are, you, are you sure there's nothing else to add to that? And why these things? What is Jesus saying here? Is he saying, look, I've got a sweet deal for you. I have the power to life and death, eternal life, and if you just do these things, if you live this terrible life that I've laid out for you, then I'll give you a good deal in heaven. It's a, a crappy job with a great retirement plan. Is that what he's sort of offering the people who follow him? We know it's not the case because just before this, Jesus has been preaching the gospel everywhere, the good news that to be in relationship with God has nothing to do with what you've done. But all of us have rejected God, and God doesn't accept us based on what we can do to crawl back to him but all on what Jesus himself has done. And he knows that there's one standing there telling them about this. What he's saying is if you, if you understand that, if you understand that to know God is, is based on nothing that you do, but all that he has done is love for you in Christ, it will have an impact on your life. It will change you. It will transform the way you look at everything and all relationships. It should and does have an impact. 
think of it this way. If you had met someone who you hadn't seen for a long time, an old friend, you ran into them in the street, and you're just making small talk, in some ways maybe you're disappointed that you're difficult to get to be a stop and chat, but they stopped after saying hi and they have to sort of make conversation. And so you start saying to them, how do you wait for your day or that sort of thing? And then they say to you, um, uh, today has been a great day, uh, I went to buy a truck, that sort of thing, and, um, and then just sort of keep talking about whatever else. You'd probably say, if they looked fine, it would be really okay to say, sorry, one in back of the stairs, you went to buy a truck today, what happened? Like, just hit you and I was parking or something like that. And then they say, you know, no, no, I got like on the freeway full speed, I got hit by a Mack truck, like square on. You're like, okay, like, am I talking about a movie here or like, a kid's toy or like what actually happened? You would, you would struggle to get your head around that because you'd say, if that happened, even if it was absolutely not their fault, you would expect to see some kind of impact on you. That would be the normal kind of thing that would happen. And Jesus is saying this, if you encounter the God of grace and love, it should leave an impact on you. It's not the kind of thing that you just walk away with and say, oh, that was interesting or whatever it is. To really understand what's going on in the gospel must have an impact. So how can we logically say that? I believe that the God is love, and not in some like vague, weird, kind of wishy-washy sense, but he actually came down to earth to live the perfect life that I didn't need. Even though I walked away from God, Jesus came back to walk in my place to pay the debt that I deserved. When he, when he was nailed to the cross, when he was denied justice, he did it for my sin, on my behalf. I didn't do anything good to deserve it. He reached out to me and loved me and rescued me. More than that, while I kept rejecting him, he kept drawing in a relationship with himself. He rose again offering new life, giving eternal life. I know a God who loves me that much more than any human relationship has ever or could ever. But it hasn't really changed much of the way I do things and how I think about it. It just doesn't make sense. It's not logical. To say that I believe something that incredible or that radical must have implications for our life. must change us and impact us. And so what Jesus is saying here is that as you look at all these blessed beings, what they are are basically the impact points of an encounter with a God of grace and love. That actually these are the marks that we bear as we encounter a God who would love us that radically and incredibly. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. If you realize that your sin has contributed nothing to this, it will give to you a, a sense of, uh, uh, there's nothing I deserve, and yet God has given me so much. A gratitude, a poorness of spirit, a, a lack of regard for ourselves, and yet a sense that we have so much. It will make us more mournful. The gospel gives us reasons to mourn. As we see sin and brokenness in the world, there'll be more reasons to mourn over things. And yet, it says, we're comforted knowing the truth of the gospel. There is a God of love who's presiding over all things and bringing all things together for the good of those who love Him. It says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It's saying, if you want to know your God and to live in relationship with Him more and more and more, the gospel empowers you to do it. If it was by works, if you had to earn your way back to God, it would be a crippling relationship. It would be that stressful kind of relationship where you were constantly thinking, have I done enough? Have I been good enough? Am I doing enough? Am I out of a relationship? Will I be rejected? And yet, the gospel frees us up to just go, God, I want to live entirely for you. It says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Saying, once you know how merciful God has been to you, how much we deserve, and yet what we've got was grace. 
will lead us to be merciful with others, to not hold debts over people's head. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The big difference between the gospel, the message of Jesus, and other religions is that the belief is that in religion you're accepted by what you do. If you fulfill this criteria and do it correctly, God will accept you. And then in the gospel it says God has already accepted you. It's not about what you do or what you contribute. And so the focus isn't on behavior but on the heart. It says blessed are those who are pure in heart because the concern for the follower of Jesus is what is my heart of these things? Do I want to do these things and leave them out as, a, as an expression of my love for God rather than I know I've got to do this stuff. I know God has made me want you to do this stuff. I've just got to get on with it because I need to manage my behaviors. It says blessed are the peacemakers for they should be called sons of God. If you understand that God is the ultimate peacemaker who reconciled relationship with us even when we didn't want to it should cause us to want other people to experience that very same thing. To not have enmity between one another. But they may actually find peace. Because we believe in a God who makes peace. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The gospel will also make them persecuted. The idea is that Jesus is such a treasure, a God worth living for, you would even suffer for the sake of living for him. Without retaliation. What Jesus is saying is once you encounter the true gospel, it transforms all of life. A radical transformation. Jesus is saying that to know him, to know the good news of salvation, not by our works but by grace, should change everything about the way we approach life. In the gospel, and we'll see this again and again in the sermon on in the gospel, radical is a new norm. Paul sees that radical faith, radical obedience to Jesus, is actually quite normal when you consider what the gospel is and the implications of it. But here's a significant question. Is that good? Is it good to have radical followers from religion? Isn't that part of the whole issue we have worldwide is that radical followers of things cause problems in every sphere of life, socially, all the way through to, to terrorism and warfare? Is it good? Is Jesus' vision for his church and his people actually good? Well, have a look at what he says next. In Matthew 5, 7 13 to 16, he says this You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, but a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And give light in all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus makes some fairly obvious points. What's the point of unsalty salt? If you had a pile of salt to put in your food and it added no flavor to it, you might as well just put sand in there. There's no point to it. It makes another obvious point. If you have a light, you wouldn't install a light in a house. I mean, not that that like works or whatever, like obviously it's a lab or whatever, you wouldn't do that and then just cover it over, there'd be no point, and it's a fire hazard, so you'd be a <laughs> as well. What's the point that he's making? He's like, light, lights are meant to shine, salt is meant to have an influence on the food around it, and he's saying in the same way, people who follow him, Jesus' church, is meant to have an impact on the people around him, but it's meant to be good. Christians are meant to be good in a, in a sorry, different in a good way. They're meant to be a blessing. So people would see your good works and glorify God. 
without actually seeing the way electricity interacts, and instead of being like, oh my gosh, if we have one more of them in the workplace, right? It's just going to be like, they're a blessing to have around. And I'll be so transformed by the gospel. Saying if his church, if his people understand the message of the good news of Jesus, it will transform us in a good way that his church would actually be a light, a soul that's salty, but actually brings blessing around. Think about it, it's kind of logical, right? Let me just pick up on a few of them. If we understand the gospel, it should make us radically poor in spirit. That is the sense that, look, I don't deserve anything in life, and yet I have everything in Christ. There's nothing that is kind of owed to me, and yet I have so much. You know what this would mean, right? It would mean for us the end of a sense of entitlement. Do you know how entitlement works? It works like this. If you have something for long enough, you start to feel like you need it. Once you feel like you need something, you feel entitled to it. Once you feel entitled to something, you judge other people's love for you by their willingness to give it. That's how it kind of works. If you have something for long enough, you feel like you need it, then you feel entitled to it. And once you feel entitled to it, you'll judge whether or not other people love you or whether or not they'll give that to you. Let me give you like a pretty just practical example of that. When, when we were um, we met families overseas, um, but particularly in Fiji, we stayed there with a youth group every year. Um, I don't travel that much, by the way. I realise there's a few travel stories in here. It's about the two times we've been over the last 10 years or whatever. But anyway, um, and most of them were just with youth group going to go to Fiji every year. Um, one of the things was whenever, when they found out while we were over there, we were pregnant, they just they, they weren't petrified. They loved it, right? They're, they're, probably no belly and praying over it and things like that. All kinds of things that only PGNs can get away with. Um, and then the next year when we actually took Asher with us, he's our, our oldest son, he was about seven months at a time. He would like at the supermarkets and stuff here, we didn't know, we'd just be like, you know, having a hold of him. Bell was just too nice to him to say, like, he's like, okay, don't take my baby. And then suddenly it's several hours away, and, you know. But, um, but in that culture, there isn't this, like, well, unless we didn't get the sense, and we were there for a good sort of six years in a row, so we got to know people well. There wasn't this sense that once you have kids, life is over. Um, in fact, there was kind of this excitement about it and all this kind of stuff, and it did get me wondering on that. And I wondered if this is the case. I might just be being naive, you know, when you dip into a culture, you don't really get a total sense of how things work. Um, but I wonder if it's this. I wonder if um, for Fijian kids, and we saw them the whole time there, they don't grow up with a lot of free time and space. Um, they're usually working their parents' business after school and things like that to make ends meet. And so they don't grow up with a lot of free time. You grow up with people around you all the time, you're in each other's lives and houses and all of that constantly. That's how village life works. And so you don't have a long period of time as which to establish a sense of entitlement without a certain amount of free time or time by myself. And so transitioning the kids, when all of that disappears, isn't a massive issue for them. But for us, for us often it is. And you can find yourself as a parent, and it's a struggle. When you first have a kid and you realize all that free time that you once had is now gone, you can start to almost treat your kid like an enemy. Like they're cutting into your sleep time that you've got entitled to, or your free time, they should be having a rest, and suddenly they're awake, and you're so mad, and you're almost like, they're working against me. Like a couple of times we've had our kids sort of like almost tag team through the night to keep us up. And I wonder if they conspire together and say, like, you take 1 to 3 a.m., I'll take 3 to We can't cover the whole night between us and break it up. Many hands make right work. You all start to feel like they're conspiring against me. You know, if I understand the gospel, 
I lose that sense of entitlement in I can say, you know what, this is what I've given them to them give. It's an opportunity to love and to serve them. And my joy now is not found in having huge amounts of free time. That's gone. But my joy is in loving and serving them and sharing Christ with them. Being radically born in spirit means it takes all that sense of entitlement about things. That will change how you approach work. If you feel like you're entitled to a certain position at work, you will use people around you because they will either help you get it or they won't. They're either for you or against you. If you feel entitled to a certain lifestyle, you'll treat people according to whether or not they can help you have that. And to know the gospel means I'm born spirit. Like, ah, I don't deserve everything, yet I have everything in Christ. It should mean that Christians should be the best at taking criticism in whatever space. One author puts it this way, say to understand the gospel is to say this. Because if you truly take it hard, the whole world can stand against you, denounce you, criticize you, and you'll be able to reply, if God has justified me, who can condemn me? If God justifies me, accepts me, he will never forsake me. Why should I feel insecure or, or fear criticism? <coughs> if you have uh, more than that, then you can reply to criticism in this way. Not literally, obviously, but you get the idea. To say, if someone criticizes you, you've not discovered a fraction of my guilt. Christ has said more about my sin, my failings, my rebellion, and my foolishness than the teammate who lay against me. Thank you for your corrections. They are a blessing and kindness to me. For even when they are long and misplaced, they remind me of my true faults and sins for which Christ my Savior died and paid dearly when he went to the cross for me. I want to hear the criticism of God. I can't imagine anyone here articulating it that way. Now I just want to be a little bit weird about it. <laughs> the gospel to be this radically poor in spirit. We would not be so self-important or hard to hold ourselves in such high and precious regard. The gospel should make us radically poor in spirit. The gospel should make us radically hunger and thirst for righteousness. Only grace can do that. If you believe that the way that you get right with God is by doing enough good things, your life will be exhausted. Because basically, the belief is, God is not out for my good. He's set up a bunch of hurdles and KPIs that if I hit, then he will approve of me, and I'll get into heaven, I'll get the stuff that I really want. But this life now is torture. It's a, it's a series of just missing out on things again and again and again. But the Gospel says, if Jesus already died to pay your price, what other reason would God give you any command except that it be for your joy and his glory? What other purpose could you possibly have? There's nothing else to draw from it for him. See, under religion, under religion, Obedience really is a matter of bargaining. I don't know if you've ever engaged in bargaining, but it can be for you. I realize this is the third one. This is all my overseas trips to life. So I haven't been invited to a concession. Okay, anyway, I was in Hong Kong. One of my many travels. I've literally been to Hong Kong, Indonesia, and Fiji. That's a gig. That's everything. Okay, anyway. Um, but we went to the, went to the night markets and made for cheap. So well traveled and international. But one of the things that like they hit you is you, you have to go and you buy them. They throw a ridiculous price at you, you throw a ridiculous price back and you work your way towards the middle. And the first time you do it, it's so exciting. But after day three, you're like, come on, <laughs> just just tell me how much. Like, what's the minimum I have to pay on this? Because it wears it down over time. Because the, the, the dynamic is this that uh, they're trying to get as much money out of you as possible, and you're trying to get as much product out of them whilst giving as little money as possible. And as you work against each other, you get a compromise, and that's your price. And that's how religion treats God. 
God wants me to do this stuff that I want to do. I want to do this stuff that He doesn't want me to do. And so you sort of whittle down a bargain between you until this kind of fair price. That's not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That's not seeking maximum obedience. That's seeing what's the bare minimum I can get away with to get what I need. That's not a relationship. That's a commercial transaction. Jesus is saying, if you understand the gospel, these people hunger and thirst for righteousness because I believe is the more I seek after following Jesus, the more I seek joy. They're not two different pursuits. And to follow him and to live for him is my joy. The one who laid down his life for me is not the one who's going to be out to sort of uh, to make my life worse. My desire is to, is to follow him with all my heart. It should be the case that those who understand the gospel should hunger and thirst for righteousness. Christians should never get to the point where you have a sense of arrival. We're like, I think I've learned the basic sort of 101 to Christianity. I'm kind of done now, I tapped out. I've sort of done my bit. Or I served a lot when I was kind of like, now I'm in uni, but now I'm sort of tapped out, I'm finished. I did my bit for God. The belief is that to seek joy is to seek after God, but hard and personal righteousness. Radical hunger and personal righteousness should be normal for all of you. You should be radically merciful. Mercy means not giving someone a punishment that they deserve, even if it's one that's, that's not particularly tangible. It should be the case that Christians are the most forgiving people around because we've known a forgiveness from God we did not deserve. But oftentimes we don't want to forgive. We're disinclined to forgive, aren't we? It's an, it's an interesting dynamic. Why is it? Why is it that so often we want to withhold forgiveness from other people? There are a couple of reasons. One is that debt is power. If someone has done something wrong toward me, it actually feels kind of good to have something to hold over their head. It feels somewhat powerful. Now, there is power in using a person's weakness and value against them. In moments we want our own way, we can pull out old sort of things and issues in order to, to get our own way with it. Sometimes uh, debt is, is, in a sense, puts us in God's position. We feel like we sit in judgment over someone's life. To forgive them and to let something go completely would mean actually relinquishing that position. There are all kinds of reasons that we do it. There are all kinds of motivations to not forgive people. And Jesus is saying it shouldn't be the case for someone who follows him. If someone has been forgiven that much by God, the natural logical response is to forgive. If you've been forgiven a billion dollar debt, it's nothing to you to forgive a thousand dollars to someone else. One man said this, blessed are those who are persecuted. We should be even willing to face persecution. Our desire to follow Jesus should trump even physical comfort. In China right now, the government has begun in one area, a campaign to take away uh, religious icons, but it will, it, will, it will result in a further crackdown. There are state-approved churches where the state approves the messages that are given and spoken there. But the main church in, in China, which is over 100 million people, happens in house churches. But the movement of the gospel has gone out throughout the nation, not through official channels, but through people living out this kind of faith that Jesus is talking about, sharing it with people and growing and growing and growing. And they're about to face another wave of crackdowns. The government sort of eased off over the last decade, and it's about to get worse. And watching a documentary on the life of the Chinese church and what they are praying for at this time, 
is praying for love and forgiveness, for a deeper desire to follow him, for a desire to be faithful, even to the point of imprisonment. But actually, radical faith in the Chinese church is just normal. It's a base level. So when you hear that, you think, wow, that's not where our communities consist of. We're not praying, oh, we just pray for such and such, they won't be this way, and we're worried because we don't know whether or not they're being taken, kidnapped, or kidnapped, or imprisoned, or murdered. For them, it's normal. I wrote with David Pipe, wrote a book called Radical, and he starts the book by, by contrasting two experiences. One is of a church in Asia, in a country that he doesn't uh, name, uh, for obvious reasons, and then the church that he was appointed on in the States. And he goes to the church, a uh, prayer meeting of the church in Asia, and the, the context of the meeting is exactly that. People are praying for those who have been um, tortured or, or people have tried to force them to deny Christ, and they're worried about them. Some of them are praying for the strength to continue leading their churches as people disappear, as things get harder and harder. And then he goes back to his church, and it's his first week, and he's been appointed the youngest mega church pastor ever in the States. And he walks past, he says, millions of dollars worth of vehicles in the car park, and there's a jumping castle and all this stuff. And he's just like, there could not be a starker contrast between these two things. And I've been thinking about this and about whether or not the church in the West, like the church in the East, is willing to be a church that the radical follows Jesus. It's a good witness to the world around. I think in many ways, and in the books here, if you want to grab it as well, I really recommend it. The, the title is misleading. He calls it radical, but it's not really radical faith, is it? It's a radical gospel. And the, the response to that is quite normal. Really, when you think about it. See, it's not us who are called to be radical, it's God who has been radical. Think about it in this way. If you, if you lived in a village, and you were poor and surrounded by poverty, and you know, the poverty get, we get poverty, we get powerlessness, we get poverty, and so on and so on and so on. If that was your context in which you live, and a millionaire came and gave all of their millions of dollars to you, they gave up everything, they didn't keep a set, they gave it all to you. And then you distributed that to everyone in the village, the hospitals, all that kind of stuff. Would people say you had acted radically? I might say that was wise or a good way of doing it, but to be honest, if you're surrounded by that, your family and friends and everyone else you know would probably say, if you kept it, it would be radical selfishness. But to keep it away would be probably a pretty acceptable response. The person who acted radically was the one who had all those millions and then gave it away, but he yourself really were acting just in response to that. This is the gospel. It's God who has acted radically. It's God who has loved us radically. And our response to that might look radical in some context, but in one sense it's really just normal. It's not a God who would lay down his life to know that this Jesus who's preaching to this crowd would suffer and die for the very people who are looking to heal him. That's radical. And the normal response should be radical mercy, fullness of spirit, meekness, hunger and thirst for righteousness. It should be the case. So is that the case? If you're a follower of Jesus, has he transformed your life radically? Is it that day by day you seek to know and to love him more and more, to have your life more and more under his lordship? Have you seen the glory of the gospel such that it will transform the way you act and live and affect your decisions? If you're here and you're unconvinced about Jesus, 
If you have anything in your life, you would even claim it to be that It claims to be greater than all the treasure on earth. It claims to be greater than any relationship you could ever have. It claims to be a love that cannot be matched by any other love. Have you experienced a love like that? That's what brings real American transformation. The truth is that the God of the Gospel, Jesus himself, is a radical God. He loves in radical ways. And to follow him in one sense, really, radical faith just becomes kind of normal. I often find for myself that I get so caught up in what's happening around me that my fears and concerns and worries are out of step with reality. I feel like over time, I'm sure you probably feel it too, but over time, my worries become so out of step with reality around me that it's almost a kind of madness. Have you ever heard that phrase that um, mad men don't know they're mad? That the key to being really insane is that you actually don't know it? When you, know, when, you, when you see someone who, like, who's self-consciously weird, like you know, someone's got like a Tumblr account and just is like, I'm so weird, people don't even know how to do it. If you know you're weird, I promise you you're not that weird. The key to being weird is that you think you're acting really normally and you're totally out of control. When I was at a bus stop in the city, there was a guy who accused me of conspiring to the robot massacre and was yelling at me, like sort of face to face. He's got it. He knows what's up. He thought I was a totally rational response to a stranger, right? That's how you get there. Imagine they're getting mad. I feel like it means so much comfort. We can almost come out to a madness where the things that we're worried and concerned about are just completely out of step with reality. The more than that, out of step with the gospel that we have. And then over time, that becomes more and more so. I wanted to finish with this. The guy at school, Francis Jam, put out a book called You and Me Forever, which is on marriage. Uh, but his thesis was this his thesis was that um, Christian couples that follow Jesus um, will get married and then basically almost be taken out of circulation. And he's, he's, he uh, said this quickly it's like, what if you met this radically following Jesus and then got married and became more radical? Because what tends to happen is you get together and it's so busy that falling in love with each other or fighting so much, you're almost just taken out of action. They say often it's the case that you, you get together and people say, look, take the first year easy and just like spend it focusing on, other, on each other and get so in love with each other that you never thing happens and fall pregnant. And you're like, all right, now we're going to have kids. What do we do about that? And you get so concerned about looking after the little boo-boo that like everything else sort of falls out of perspective. And before you know it, 20, 30, 40 years have gone by. And it's just happened without even thinking about it. Without thinking about the needs and wants of the people around you. And how it is that we're called, like when we stand on the mountain, to be a light and a snare on the hill. So we're going to show a clip. Uh, I'll finish up with this as, as the application of time to reflect. On a couple of marriages who follow Jesus and are really ordinary people, and suspected them in incredible ways. And to think and respond and think, I understood the gospel in that sense. Has it transformed me in that way? I look at the screen. When we first started talking about getting married, I mentioned, what if we have a really big wedding and invite all of our neighbors? We live in a neighborhood of 400 by 400 yards, and in that area are four 25-story high-rise buildings. And in those buildings are 4,000 people. As we kept talking, we realized a lot of our neighbors don't have cars. A lot of our neighbors would never step foot church building, and um, and realistically, the only way they can come to a wedding is if the wedding came to them. 
driving home from church, and we just heard a great sermon on the book of James. And then on the ride home, Sharon said, we ought to really do something that matters. And I thought she was going to suggest we look in the soup kitchen, or maybe do something on Saturday afternoons to help people. And instead, she introduced the idea of adoption. We saw a picture in a newsletter of George. The ad said that he was healthy, but was born with no arms and desperately needed a loving home. And I really felt that God was speaking to me and saying, I want you to adopt this boy. I have a plan for this boy to be in your family. And I was actually afraid to even mention it to Mike because it was such a departure from anything we'd ever done. When I was in control, I drank everything away. I drank away my marriage, I drank away my children, I drank away my relationships. My life basically caved and it crashed in around me. Our marriage was in a bad place. I knew that I could move forward with the way things were going. And I made a decision to find a divorce. Should we go out there or out here? Let's go out here because we're going to show you the wedding site and everything. Folks don't normally have a wedding next to something like this, and it isn't always this bad, but as you can see, there's a bit of garbage strewn around today, but it really worked out well on our wedding day. This is where we said I do, and uh, we've had all of the chairs right here, and our neighbors, and you can see the buildings, and uh, the whole neighborhood could hear our wedding, and a lot of people came down and joined the party when they heard uh, songs and prayers in their languages. Because we wanted to include as many people as we could in our wedding, we actually ended up deciding to have two wedding ceremonies and two three-hour receptions in one day. I think as we make our major life decisions about who we'll marry, what our career will be, where we'll live, how we'll spend our time. I think we all have defaults in our life that kind of dictate or guide us in these decisions. As we were planning our wedding, there's so many cultural defaults that may not necessarily be bad or good, but they just are handed to us. And I really felt God speak to me to challenge how I would do our wedding and how we would live our lives. And our new defaults would be what would glorify God most. Paraphrase 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Christ, who is rich, became poor so that we, through his poverty, could become rich. And as Jesse and I were getting married, we wanted our lives to reflect this verse, to intentionally become poor in some way by moving into a high needs neighborhood. And it has certainly enriched our lives. Before we got married, people told us that we should maybe not live in our neighborhood for our first year of marriage, that we should take it easy and really build into our marriage. And we really felt strongly that we should stay in our neighborhood, that we should start our marriage by serving God together, because that's what we wanted our whole lives to look like. There's something powerful about seeking first God's kingdom with your spouse that makes your love go deeper and stronger than if you were just seeking first year marriage.
There you go. We got George home, and things started to go fairly well, and he got healthy and happy. And I thought, okay, we've done our deal. This is uh, our grand contribution to the kingdom. God should be very happy with us now. Um, I went by the computer one night, and Sharon was sitting there looking at the internet, and she had found James, and it said, boy born in India with no arms. And Sharon had the idea, why don't we make them brothers? Wouldn't that be amazing? Serving God really takes a lot of submission and it takes a lot of sort of repetitious, unglamorous kind of work. I think people can look at our family and see 12 vivacious kids and think, wow, this, you know, what a beautiful thing. But that involved years and years of doing the same thing over and over again. And you have to be willing to kind of make yourself nothing sometime. And then he blesses those efforts and in the end, he makes them into something beautiful. With Sharon and I, I think it's that we actually don't focus on our marriage that makes it a great one. And Satan sometimes whispers in your ear when you're tired or alone at three in the morning and says, your friends are going to Jamaica next week. They're just going to sit on the beach and stare into each other's eyes. You don't have a way to do something like that. <laughs> and you're like, what have I done to myself? And then, you have other moments where you go right to the tip of the mountain and you realize it's going to have uh, effects for eternity. I think this adoptive mission we're on has been the best thing for our marriage because I see people that have been married as long as us struggling to find common ground and find common interests and, and stay interested in each other. And I feel like we have this big God adventure that we're on together. And, and that's the most romantic thing you could be doing. There's 140 million orphans around the world in the country. Just use our marriage to just ignore that whole worldwide problem. I don't know how you're going to face God at the end and say, oh, we, we, we put us together and we found us and we made us. And what we decided to do with our marriage was get comfortable. As we do here with Kids City, like when we hear the word God on and walk away, out, it often comes to reflect what God has said to you through uh, the sermon, that video. I watched that video this week with the age prep with Grace and Holly. I've been reading this was just mentioned by my wife at the moment, and it really challenged uh, my own faith and want to live a life that is radical um, for the glory of God alone. So I'm living hard at how I how I live out. What's called in my life. But I'll give you some just for yourself. Every now and again, you're going to see that we, um, we offer after or during the last three songs credit back. We'll do that today again. If you feel like you've even been struck by something today in the sermon, or God has said to you personally, uh, myself, if you'll get it back. If you want to come, if you want to back, we'll, we'll love to pray for you. There's just some uh, steps going forward, maybe, for today. So during these last three songs, uh, if you come back, we'll pray for you. Let me give you time as a minute or so to reflect. You know, pray, you want to think. What should we want to do? But let's just move too quickly. Let's give you time to go out now for a minute or so.